Hey guys, let me tell you about Fable Beard Company, the official beard and hair products company of the American History Podcast. They have some fantastic new products for the spring to help you not only fight the dreaded beard itch, but they'll keep your beard smelling great all day long. Fable recently released their newest scent called the Druid. This one features a scent profile of smoky tobacco leaf, carnelian bergamot, rainforest woods, creekside stone moss, and earthy musk. It's truly an enchanting scent straight out of a fantasy tale. As always, it comes in several different products, beard oil, beard butter, and a beard wash. Visit fablebeardcode.com and use coupon code SEAN15 at checkout to receive 15% off each and every single order. You'll be happy that you did. And remember, use coupon code SEAN15, S-H-A-W-N-1-5, for that 15% discount on each and every single order. Okay, let's get back to the show. The American History Podcast, Season 4, Episode 32, World War II in China, Part 1. Are you listening? All you fine boys in your comfortable foxhole, listen closely. Welcome back to the show. Now, for those who are wondering how they can support the show, there are several ways. First, if you're interested, you can join our Patreon group. For just $10 a month, you'll get access to two bonus shows. And of course, these episodes are provided commercial free. You also get access to the free episodes and usually a week before the public hears them. So head over to patreon.com forward slash American History and sign up today. At the $10 a month level, you'll have probably close to 40 hours of content that is unavailable anywhere else. Now, if you're into or you're not into the Patreon thing, you can always support the show in other ways. First, please drop by Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star review. Just a couple of sentences will do, and this helps not only uh, would-be listeners find the show, but it tells advertisers that you're enjoying it. You can also go to the website, www.theamericanhistorypodcast.com, and when you shop at Amazon, just enter through one of the linked books that we have on our resources page. That will cause them to send us a few pennies, and it doesn't cost you a dime. Any help is very much appreciated, so thank you for that. All right, now, in our last episode, we spent some time looking at the final aspects of Guadalcanal, and that was the naval battles that took place in November 1942. Now, it's been a while since we've discussed China, but I don't want us to forget that aspect of the war. So we'll spend the next few episodes talking about what was the second Sino-Japanese War. Now, before I confuse anyone, let me remind you that, yes, we did uh, two episodes on that conflict this season, episodes five and nine. However, we left off with December of 1941, and we kind of brushed over quite a bit. So what's been going on um, since then? Well, I think it's time that we found out. Now, of course, that means we need to head back in time to China in the late 1930s. And the song of the week this week is Shangri-La, and I'm probably going to butcher this name, but it's by Sheng Zhili. Uh, we'll see you in a moment.
是一个好向导，让我看到了这一片好风光。我要赞美，我要歌唱。So, last time we spoke about China was episode 4.9, the Sino-Japanese War Part Two. Now, truly, this episode is really a continuation of that story, but I figured since it's 23 episodes ago, I didn't want to title it Sino-Japanese War Part Three. Instead, we're calling it World War Two in China Part One.、Um, but please be aware that this really is Sino-Japanese War Part Three. All right. Anyways, enough of that confusion. Let's get on into this. I first want to mention there isn't a lot of literature on this subject, at least not here in the West. There are various reasons for that, and I want to talk about them before we delve into the narrative itself. So, to answer a question that you might have, yes, China did have a very important role to play in the war against Japan. It was not a minor one either. Furthermore, America and her allies fully understood at the time the fact that China was a major player and it was of importance. Indeed, to quote historian Rana Mitter. The war between China and Japan at that time, and he's referring to the late 1930s, was quote one of the most high-profile wars on the planet. So what happened? Why did China's role disappear down the memory hole? What happened was the Cold War. All sides in the aftermath of World War II aligned their interpretation of the conflict based on the lens of the Cold War, or should I say, they began to interpret it via the lens of the Cold War. Now, case in point. Um, in the United States, and maybe in Britain, I'm not exactly sure.、Um, the contribution of the Soviet Union is often overlooked or downplayed. 
And again, referring to Mitter's work, quote, Japan and China traded places in American and British affections between 1945 and 1950, end quote. Japan went from enemy to asset. China, on the other hand, went from ally against Japan to being seen as an unpredictable communist giant. So what I'm trying to do is, in essence, move China from a sideshow in our narrative to an important wartime ally against Japan. While the Soviet Union was given the ultimate test in the war against the Nazis, it came out of that conflict battered but not broken. It was able to not just fight back but survive. Nationalist China, on the other hand, led by Chiang Kai-shek, was essentially destroyed by Japan. During the war, there were those in the West who condemned the Chinese war effort, criticizing Chiang's government as being corrupt. They even made a joke of his name, referring to him as Cash My Check. Of course, and you should know this already, the true story was much more complicated than this. Indeed, the reality is that, thanks to the Europe First strategy pursued by the United States and the United Kingdom, the Allies did help China stay in the fight, but only assisted it just enough to do that, keep it in the fight. To make matters worse, Chiang was often asked or forced to deploy his troops in a way that served American and British interests, but did not, and in fact actually undermined, China's own goals. Thus, what you had was a crippled nationalist regime that limped to the finish line in 1945. You had a government that, after years of war, was overwhelmed by that war, but also by domestic dislocation and, in the end, unreliable allies. In the end, it is important for us to understand the Chinese experience in the war, because it not only gives us a greater understanding of the conflict, but it helps us to understand China today. Why do the Chinese act a certain way? And by that, I mean the Chinese government. Why do they seem to not trust the West? Perhaps it's because they remember the way China was treated in the years leading up to, and including, World War II? Okay, so with that out of the way, let's get into the narrative. I want to backtrack a bit. Yes, I know, but just bear with me here. And talk about the early days of the war against Japan. One of the important figures to know um, who helps us understand this period is a reporter named Du Zhongguan. And I probably butchered that name, so I'm sorry. Um, he had been imprisoned at one point. But by the time the war was breaking out, he was free and adopted, so to speak, by powerful nationalists. This was due to his anti-Japanese rhetoric. Now, he is important because he gives us a look into the disruption taking place thanks to the war. He started off in central China, and while he attempts to use the rail network to get around, he notes that oftentimes trains were delayed or simply canceled. The war caused widespread disruption to the rail network, which was the most powerful representation of modernity in China during the 20th century, or the early 20th century. Even the Japanese-owned Manchurian Railway was used as a sort of propaganda piece to showcase the sleek and modern nature of the Japanese empire versus the backwardness of Chinese society. The nationalists also saw the power of the railroad, and because of that fact, they doubled the mileage of the track from 30,000 to 60,000 kilometers as a bragging point. Thus, Japanese attacks were against not just the people, but the very infrastructure of modernity in China. Now, one thing Du noticed was that within weeks of the fighting breaking out, the usual patterns of life were altered. Now people had to work by night instead of by day. They also had to remain quiet for long periods of time and were subjected to the constant fear of death. Chaos enveloped the nation and affected all levels of society. This led foreign observers to begin doubting 
whether China would be able to survive the onslaught. Here's what one diplomat, the British military attaché in Wuhan, said, quote, The Chinese are not serious about fighting our war and have done nothing but harm to our interests, having brought about serious international situation in Shanghai and gravely jeopardized our commercial interests in central China. The central government should therefore receive no encouragement to continue, end quote. Gloomy predictions were all in the rage at this point. Many Western experts believed that while the nationalist government was likely doomed, China itself was unchanging and likely to survive somehow. You also had these experts who, reluctantly, admitted that many of the nationalist government's problems were not of its own making. The government was attempting to modernize the nation, a task which was far from complete when the war broke out. Now it had to abandon these plans and instead focus on simply defeating the Japanese. Now, if you wonder why the British and other Westerners were so pessimistic, part of it was the fact that if China was in a bad spot, the West had some responsibility for having put it there. To make matters worse, war clouds were gathering over Europe at this very time. So the last thing the British needed was a war in China. Then there was the dilemma facing Chiang. He had limited resources, so where could he, or should he, focus them, precious as they were? One example was the situation to the northwest of Beijing, or Beiping as it was called at that time. 150 miles northwest of the city was the 29th Army, under the leadership of Chang's ally, General Tang Enbo. His troops fought valiantly, but he lost 26,000 men because he had little support from Central Command. The reality was Chang had to decide to keep his best troops in Central China, believing the North had been lost anyway. The lack of material support meant that, indeed, the North was lost. Here is what our journalist, Du, had to say. Quote, they, the 29th Army, had no defensive works. Furthermore, our side had no aircraft nor cannon. So when the enemy aircraft came on raids, all they could do was wait to die. Each day, they only got one meal because the supply transport corps were so often bombed by enemy aircraft. But what I felt saddest about was that when our side withdrew, a lot of our seriously wounded brothers had no one to look after them. Please tell me, who are we fighting for? Who are we sacrificing for? End quote. Then there was the fighting for the city of Taiyan, located hundreds of kilometers to the west of Shandong. The enemy assaulted the city using three separate groupings. The resistance fought heroically, but eventually, as casualties mounted, the lines broke and the troops fled west. The Communist 8th Army was nearby, but did not partake in the defense of the city. Mao Zedong told his comrade Zhou Enlai they should be ready for the city to fall, and if needed, then it ought to be burned. The fall of that city convinced Mao that the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, needed to be ready to engage in a long war against the Japanese, and the way to effectively do this was to use guerrilla tactics. In his typical style, the chairman noted, quote, The essence of the contradiction is that those who have seized the latrine pit can't shit, while the people of the whole country, who suffer acutely from bloating, have no pit. Resistance by the government and the army alone can never defeat Japanese imperialism, end quote. The way to go, he believed, was by using the aforementioned tactics and hitting the Japanese in the rear and on their flanks, then melting away in the chaos and confusion. All of this is well and good, but there were deep-seated issues in China at that time that meant it would be very difficult to defeat the Japanese. 
Now, first, there was the nature of Chinese politics in the 20s and 30s. Now, as you probably remember from the earlier episodes, polarization was the name of the game in China at this time. Neither the nationalists nor the communists were willing to allow that a disagreement could be legitimate in any way. Both made a gesture or two toward allowing minor parties, but in no way were they interested in creating a pluralist political culture. As long as those minor parties did not in any way undermine their rule, they were okay with them. Now, the second problem with the constant warfare, which led to the culture of violence that permeated Chinese society, something that was a common practice was the public humiliation of criminals. However, during the war, using this practice to punish and humiliate collaborators obscured some of the difficult choices people were faced with. Often the dilemma of whether or not to leave family or property behind meant one might have to collaborate in order to get by. It was not, by any means, a stark black and white choice. So you had this as well as the constant warfare, which created a culture of violence. Then there was the fact that war meant Chinese society was mobilized and militarized on a level never before seen. It certainly had not even seemed possible to attain this level of mobilization in China prior to the war. Now going forward, mass mobilization would be the norm, be it the public humiliation and killing of landlords in Mao's land reform campaigns of the 1950s, or the ritual public torture of doctors and teachers during the Cultural Revolution. It all had roots in the Second World War. Then of course, there was the problem of refugees. There can never be a true counting of the numbers of people who fled from the war, but some estimates suggest it was around 80 million people. People fled in all directions, and thus the governments they lived under, struggling to in their effort just to survive, didn't keep accurate records. This mass movement of people back and forth, some returned right after they had fled, meant that Chinese society at this point was destabilized, a fact that would continue to affect the nation even after the war had ended. All right, now it's the spring of 1938. Shanghai and Nanking have fallen to the Japanese. At the end of January, Chiang called a conference of his top military leaders, declaring that the main priority was to defeat, or to defend, I should say, the east-central Chinese city of Shuzhou, which lay about 500 kilometers north of Wuhan. Part of Chiang's thinking, or what went into his calculations, was the fact that this city was located on the middle of the Tianjin-Pukou line, and if that line were to be taken, it would give the Japanese military control over the north-south travel in the heavily populated region of central China. To make it even more important, the city and its rail lines were key to defending Wuhan. Now, as you can imagine, no one was sure if Wuhan could survive the coming Japanese attack. Predictions were, obviously, dark, to say the least. Amazingly, however, in a strange way, the breakdown of political power in the city led to an artistic renaissance of sorts. Artists and writers flocked to the city in an attempt to avoid the censorship imposed on people by the nationalist government. Now, at the same time while this was going on, the situation for the nationalists looked dire by the March of 38. The Japanese were closing in on victory along the Shuzhou front. The plan was for the North China Area Army, under the command of General Zitagaki Saishiro, Nishio Tojizo, and Isogai Rensuke to link up with the Central China Expeditionary Force in a united attack on Central China. The defending commanders, which included Chinese generals 
by Chongzhi and Tangembo, decided they would confront the Japanese at the city of Taizhuang. It wasn't a large city, but it was strategically significant, as it lay along the Grand Canal, as well as a major rail line. It was so important that Chiang Kai-shek himself visited the city on March 24th. At first, it appeared the Chinese had the upper hand, but by April 1st, they were no longer confident of the outcome. Cheng made it clear in a telegram dated April 1st, 1938, that the enemy must be defeated and the city held at all costs. Failure was not an option. Now, the war had, as you know, been brutal so far. This battle would be just as grim, with combat face-to-face and hand-to-hand. Here's what one of the staff officers later said of the fighting here. Quote, We had a battle for the little lanes of the town, and unprecedentedly, not just streets and lanes, but even courtyards and houses. Neither side was willing to budge. Sometimes we'd capture a house and dig a hole in the wall to approach the enemy. Sometimes the enemy would be digging a hole in the same wall at the same time. Sometimes we faced each other with hand grenades, or we might even bite each other, end quote. Absolutely brutal stuff. Taking place over a week, the battle ended with a Chinese victory. The Japanese certainly had a technical advantage, but in the cramped conditions of the city, they actually lost that advantage. Plus, the Chinese high command was able to resupply their forces. Slowly, the Japanese army was worn down, and eventually they broke and retreated, leaving behind thousands of dead. Now, as you can imagine, this led to an explosion of celebration throughout all of unoccupied China. The win provided the Chinese with a very much needed boost in morale, both in their military and civilian populations. But there were reminders that, despite reports to the contrary, the enemy army was made up of human beings. One soldier noted that he found love letters on the corpses of the Japanese soldiers, and at least one had a photo of a girl, perhaps his hometown sweetheart, marked, quote, 19 years old, February 1938, end quote. In the end, even the foreign observers in China noted the victory was well-deserved. The American ambassador wrote to the Secretary of State that his observers believed the victory showed the Japanese had bitten off more than they could chew, at least for now. It was obvious they'd need to use far more troops than they had anticipated if they were going to pacify China. They also noted that the atmosphere of the Chinese resistance had improved. There was now, according to the observers, a feeling that the government was more united under Chiang than it had been, and perhaps the future was not entirely hopeless were not as bleak as it had been just a few weeks earlier. Even the British, who had always been wary of Chang, had to give him credit. Sir Archibald Kerr, the British ambassador in China, wrote to Lord Halifax, the British Foreign Secretary, that, quote, Chang has now become the symbol of Chinese unity, which he himself has so far failed to achieve, but which the Japanese are well on the way to achieving for him. The days when Chinese people did not care who governed them seem to have gone, my visit to central China from out of the gloom and desperation depression of Shanghai has left me stimulated and more than disposed to believe that provided the financial end can keep be kept up, Chinese resistance may be so prolonged and effective that in the end the Japanese effort may be frustrated, end quote. Now sadly, the glow of victory did not last long. The Japanese learned their lessons from this loss. They came up with new war plans and brought in more troops, moving soldiers from armies in the north and central parts of China to enclose the city of Taizhuang in a vice. As a matter of fact, things were about to get worse. Far worse. 
the nationalist government was in a bind and desperate. The glow from the victory they had recently had was quickly fading. And it was at this moment that a decision was made, a decision to weaponize a river. However, this wasn't just any river. It was the Yellow River, the Wanghe, also known as China's Sorrow. Famous for the low silt that gives the river its name, this river made the surrounding land excellent for farming. In fact, the area is known as the cradle of Chinese civilization, and it's thanks to the Huanghe that human beings settled there thousands of years ago. But while the river gave life to China, it also took life away. It's famous for flooding every few centuries and causing catastrophic loss of life. And by the 1930s, the river was held in check, thanks to massive dikes that prevented it from leaving its bed. As the Japanese army advanced on Wuhan, the only way left to stop them, or so it seemed, was to unleash the river. Now, the idea appears to have come from Chang himself. The problem was that if the Japanese were allowed to take Wuhan, the nationalist government would be under severe threat. It, the government, may not even be able to evacuate itself to Chongqing. Chang had a choice to make, either allow the Japanese to take Wuhan or unleash the Yellow River. He decided on the latter. Now, of course, breaking the dikes is easier to say than it is to do. First, the right spot had to be found. By June 8th, that had been accomplished, and the work began. There were about 2,000 soldiers working on breaking the dikes, something which surely made them uneasy at best. They had to know what would happen. Explosives had failed to do the job, and it came down, in the end, to good old-fashioned elbow grease, so to speak. And by the morning of June 9th, the atmosphere amongst the men working to do the job was tense. At first, a trickle of water started leaking. Then, by 1 p.m., a fierce flood was moving through the breach. Quote, my heart ached, end quote, is how one witness put it. Soon, a deadly onrush of water, hundreds of feet wide, flowed onto the plains of central China. It is estimated that something like three-quarters of the river's volume flowed through the breach that day. Downstream, thousands of peasants, if not millions, were in danger from the flood. They had not been warned, and the reality is, they could not have been warned. Doing so would mean the Japanese army might be able to get itself out of the way, or perhaps even have a chance to stop the plan. Either way, the government had committed, at least according to one historian, one of the grossest acts of violence against its own people in history up to that point. Chang immediately blamed the Japanese for breaking the dike. Needless to say, the Japanese denied they were responsible. But the damage to their reputation was done. Especially in the United States, people were quite willing to believe the Japanese were capable of committing such a horrific atrocity. It was not until much later that the truth came out. But by then, the damage was done. Now, in the short term, the maneuver did work. It gave the nationalists about five months to evacuate Wuhan, and it made it impossible for the Japanese, at least for now, to move forward. However, at what cost? Half a million Chinese are estimated to have died in the flood that followed. And in the end, the nationalist government would have to atone for the damage they caused. How much damage exactly? This is hard to say. Some historians put the number um, at 800,000 Chinese dead in the flooding, not half a million, and another 4 million turned into refugees. The flooding destroyed the harvest not only that year, but for years going forward. This led to a famine in 1942 and 1943, which caused the death of about 2 million via starvation and another 2 to 3 million to become refugees. 
The dike itself was not repaired until 1947 with the assistance of the UN Relief and Rehabilitation Agency. Okay, so that's all I've got for you this time. Next time we will continue our look at China in World War II. Until then, I'm Sean, and you've been listening to Season 4, Episode 32 of the American History Podcast. I'll see you next time. Shut it off for our rent. Oh, please, I like it. Wait a minute.